Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet, and today we're talking about the cookbook biz. What's it like to publish a cookbook? How do you do it? How much money do you make? And my guest this week is a prolific cookbook author, Andrea Gwynn, who's written seven cookbooks, including Vietnamese Food Any Day, The Pho Cookbook, The Dumpling Cookbook, The Tofu Cookbook, The Bon Mi Handbook. She is incredibly, incredibly successful in the cookbook industry and is incredibly knowledgeable about all this, especially because she's also the co-host of a brand new podcast called Everything Cookbook. Everything, sorry, Everything Cookbooks, a podcast for curious writers, readers, and cooks that she co-hosts with Kate Leahy, Molly Stevens, who I adore, who's been on this podcast, and Kristen Donnelly. And together, they talk all about the cookbook publishing industry. And so let's just jump into it. Here is my conversation about cookbook publishing with Andrea Quinn. All right, Andrea. Well, it's so nice to have you on my podcast. I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks for doing it. Oh, you're very welcome, Adam. I just don't know why it took us so long, right? I don't know, but you just started a podcast of your own with um, a couple of cookbook authors. Do you want to tell everybody about it? Sure. It's called Everything Cookbooks. And um, I co-host it with three other um, veteran cookbook authors, Molly Stevens, who has been doing this for so long that she says, she's like, oh, I'm like the OG of the group, you know, <laughs> and, and um, Kate Leahy, as well as Kristen Donnelly. And the three of us bring different perspectives and um, to the conversation because we um, like Molly and I do a lot of um, cookbook writing on our own. And then um, Kristen and Kate, they um, actually, they do a lot of collaborations with mm -hmm. um, other folks like chefs and um, different organizations and stuff. So, um, you know, the cookbook world is filled with all kinds of publications and we just want to like draw geeks and cookbook freaks together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I started listening to it and I really love it because it's so candid and you guys, and you're all very honest about the cookbook industry. I mean, one of the things that you, I think you said, but it's been a while since I listened to it, uh, this episode, I think it was the first episode talking about how you don't make a lot of money writing cookbooks. And I don't think that's a commonly known thing. I think people think, oh, you got a cookbook deal. You must be rolling in cash. And, uh, you know, that's so not true. And I love that you all talked about that on the podcast. Why don't we talk about money, you know, yeah. and we don't talk about it enough. And um, I think that people think, oh, you know, I'm getting a book deal. And mm -hmm. even my friends who write um, novels, you know, mm -hmm. they're, who are not, who don't produce what are called illustrated books, which is what cookbooks are because they have pictures in them. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, oh yeah, you know, I told my husband, you know, those you know, if you sell more than 5,000 coffees, that's like a good thing. <laughs> so why don't those royalty checks roll in? You know, and it's like, there's so many different ways to approach cookbook writing. And I think that, that our podcast really delivers information for not just people who produce cookbooks, who are involved in the process, but mm -hmm. also people who love cookbooks, who want to mm -hmm. know more about how it's made. So really kind of like, you know, behind the scenes kind of thing. And then, you know, we're full of angst. So, <laughs> you know, we release it. 
I love that. Well, I, th I thought today we would focus on cookbook writing and, and publishing, because I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this who have maybe have aspirations to write a cookbook someday or are curious about it. And so I was looking at your Amazon page and your website, and I was trying to figure out how many books you've written. And it seems like you've written seven well, I've written um, six cookbooks on my own, and then okay. I worked on a collaboration um, uh, for something called Unforgettable, which mm -hmm. was a uh, crowdfunded uh, biography cookbook about um, Paula Wolfert. Mm -hmm. And so I've done mostly traditional publishing, but I've also done like this kind of, you know, off-roading, weird kind of self-publishing deal and um, okay so you know it's I've learned so much during my career and I was just thinking before I talked to you Adam I'm like oh my god I've like done this for nearly 20 years wow I mean yeah. I started my food blog in 2004 so it's almost 20 years for me too so I mean it's it goes by so quickly um but it's so funny also I mean, this is a departure from our main conversation, but how much things have changed in terms of how we promote ourselves now, because I, I think I was just telling you, I have a book coming out in October and my, the PR team was really interested in me getting on TikTok. That was like the new thing. They're like, well, TikTok is where so many, and I, I was so reluctant. And then very recently I was like, I just got to do it. And now I'm starting to enjoy it, but it's just fascinating how the, how the technologies change and the channels of promoting yourself change too. But to go back to you, I, I guess I'm curious, like the very first book, can you tell us about that experience of writing and sure. selling it? Sure. So, you know, everybody who wants to write a cookbook, you know, it's like making a first record. You're mm -hmm. just like, I've got this in me, you know, and um, I was no overnight success. So my first mm -hmm. book was um, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen and it released in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I um, had been wanting to write a Vietnamese cookbook that reflected the experience of Vietnamese refugees and immigrants to this country, the mm -hmm. Vietnamese American experience you know, we're in 2022 right now. And so that's kind of like people go, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> of course, you know, the hyphenated experience matters. But back then when I was shopping the idea around in the um, mid to late nineties, um, many years before the book was actually published, people were like, ah, you know, it's a nice idea, but um, you need to be on television. And, um, you know, without something, uh, you know, on TV, you're not recognized, no one's going to buy the book. Great idea, mm -hmm. can't sell it. And it was really disheartening because I had been reading cookbooks since I was like 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to the library and I read a lot of Western cookbooks. And I had a copy of Irene Close, The Keys to Chinese Cooking. And I was like, man, you know, here is a Chinese woman I didn't even know what, you know, Asian Pacific American, you know, I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just like a kid. And mm -hmm. I was like, here is someone who is Asian writing about Asian cooking in this really wonderful, dynamic manner. Her um, editor was Judith Jones. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know who Judith Jones was. I just knew it was a good cookbook. And I thought, I want to write a cookbook. Mm -hmm. right. And the Vietnamese cookbooks that were out there painted Vietnam as like this remote exotic thing and mm -hmm. the you know they didn't talk about people coming here with just nothing mm -hmm. but memories and creating the flavors that they wanted and that was my experience with Vietnamese cooking mm -hmm. 
I'm going to tell you, Adam, even though people think I'm like the expert in America about Vietnamese food, I have the time to think that I know nothing. Right. Well, that, that's a certain kind of modesty. I think that's required to actually be an expert because it's sort of like if you, if you profess to be an expert, you probably are posturing a little bit anyway. So I feel like that's good that you're because it means you're constantly learning and growing. Right. Yeah. yeah but, at, but at the same time, I was going to ask you when you were pitching, shopping this book around, had there been a lot of Vietnamese cookbooks before that? There were a handful. And so, you know, we, when you put together a book idea, you have to do um, what are called comps. So you need to look up like other titles that are existing. And then so that to to show like, hey, yeah, I know what's out there. And, Mm -hmm. and I know how my book's going to be different. And there were books and there was one book that was um, Nicole Ruthier's The Food of Vietnam, that was a full color publication. But like as a Vietnamese person, and I was like, in my 20s, I was like, she uses olive oil. Where would Vietnamese people get olive oil? That just <laughs> right. doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Like my family doesn't use olive oil. Where the hell, you know? And and the <laughs> ingredient lists were really long, and it really made Vietnamese food seem so remote and exotic. Mm-hmm. And as refugees, immigrants to the United States, my family ate all kinds of foods. You know, my mother cooked from Julia Child's cookbooks mm-hmm. and called, you know, felt so familiar with Julia Child that she called, referred to Julia Child as Julie. And, <laughs> and I mean, it was just, you know, I, I, so I wanted to make Vietnamese food as common or as familiar to people as these other cuisines that I had read about. Mm-hmm. Italian cuisine, Mexican food. You know, I I had this cookbook called The Whole World Cookbook that I picked up through one of the book of the month deals. And I was like, I looked at that. And it was like this totally global perspective on food. And I'm like, well, I want Vietnamese food to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And no one was doing it. And I thought, well, why can't I? It's just that I didn't know how to get there. You're from New York. And mm-hmm. so you're familiar with publishing and what, you know, you got to be in New York to be in publishing. Oh yeah. I've learned that by moving away from New York. It took a while to get back into it. So totally a hundred percent. That's true. Yeah. And for me, I did not know that. I was like, here I am in California. (laughs) You know, my family landed here in 1975 in a refugee resettlement camp, and we just stayed there in Southern Mm -hmm. California. And writing cookbooks for me meant that, you know, I could just, uh, I could figure it out somehow. I didn't know what to do. And I knew enough people um, in the entertainment business in LA who were like trying to steer me, but you know, it's just so far away from mm-hmm. food publishing. At the same time, I was um, going to the used bookstores and also the library to check out cookbooks. And in the 1990s, I was like, turn back to the clock to the 80s <laughs> and 90s. Um, there were cookbooks being written and published, um, you know, in California um, by a publishing company called Ten Speed Press. Right. And I was just kept... about to say Ten Speed. It was in San Francisco, right? They were in Berkeley. And Berkeley, I, and, right. and Chronicle Books, too. And they were, like, releasing these Asian cookbooks and very interesting books, like um, Ten Speed produced um, the Moosewood Cookbook. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. So I was like, Hey, Tensby Press. Okay, I know about them, and um, I and Chronicle Books, and I sent my proposal to Chronicle Books, and it was returned. And I was like, "All right, I get the message." <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
And had you written at all for like newspapers or anything before this? I mean, were you going straight into trying to write a cookbook without having published you know, recipes elsewhere? I have never published a recipe elsewhere. Okay. I um, had written, um, believe it or not, restaurant reviews for okay. an LA-based Korean-American publication that was a freebie. Okay. And I'd done that. That was my extent. Um, Jonathan Gold was, you know, was a person that I grew up with and mm -hmm. also into my young adulthood. Um, when he was still relatively young, I read his work like every week, like everybody else did in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was like, okay, I can like, you know, try to like provide a little bit of different perspective, you mm -hmm. know, from, from an Asian American perspective. Um, and then I was going to school and, and working full-time at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And um, I thought to myself, okay, you know, I can, I was supposed to study, I got a master's degree in communication management and I thought, oh, well, you know, food, <laughs> communication, sort of the same right. thing, right? And, and um, I just like, I didn't know quite how I was going to get there, but I knew that 10 speed was like a potential. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until uh, that I, I got wind that there was a new food publication called Sever magazine. Right. And I knew enough from looking, um, from reading that Coleman Andrews, who was one of the co-founders, was someone of note. Mm -hmm. And I looked on their masthead and I read their stories and they were inviting people who were not like the traditional um, white writers that you saw anywhere, everywhere. Right. It was different. And so, you know, part of what I, I am trying to communicate is that you need to really know who the players are out there mm -hmm. if you're going to get into food writing professionally. And this is all you know? pre like Twitter, pre Instagram, because th those are channels that I've used sort of you know accidentally to like form connections and relationships with people in the food world I mean even you and I like following each other you know just being able to but before all that is it, it must have seemed very intimidating to try to get through the door so to speak because there wasn't it an was. easy way to do that yeah it was called typing a letter out and mailing yeah. it with a postage stamp <laughs> what's and that a, i'm not familiar <laughs> never seen and a, one <laughs> and a self-addressed stamped on return envelope really? so that they can send you a message oh a communication wow. <laughs> i'm glad i didn't have to i mean i, I grew up probably you know I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s so there was all that but i was probably too young to like really have to utilize that you know except when yeah. i was at camp camp writing letters to my parents yeah there you go there you go <laughs> and so like i sent um, a pitch letter to Coleman Andrews mm -hmm. and I, he called me. Wow. That's great. In my rent controlled apartment in Santa Monica, uh -huh. <laughs> I got to talk to Coleman Andrews and he also later on sent a typewritten note to me that I think I, I still have somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, it sounds so primitive, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. So he called you. So were you shocked or were you? Uh, yeah, I was like, oh my God, it's Coleman Andrews. And he gave me a little, you know, assignment um, to write about mooncakes. And then I, then I started this, you know, very loose relationship with the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it was in New York. And I really didn't get a break until I moved to Northern California. 
Um, by the way, I think of Coleman Andrews as the Mr. Big in Ruth Reichel's memoir because she wrote Comfort Me with Apples where she was having an affair with Coleman Andrews like in Europe. And it's, and so I just thought, thought of him as like, you know, handsome, dapper, like, you know, I just had no idea. I just had this imaginary. And then, you know, he is very handsome, but it was just like to see him in the real world is just like a person versus like the fantasy in Ruth Reichel's book. It was just so funny. So I always think of, of that book, Comfort Me, Comfort Me with Apples, whenever I hear his name, because he's such a well, figure. I actually knew someone who <laughs> knew him way back then. Uh-huh. And um, she she's not in the food world, but um, I met her in LA and she said he was just dashing yeah i'm sure so coleman if you're listening <laughs> i don't think he's listening <laughs> i doubt it <laughs> you never know but you can right. yeah. there was a time when women just you know dropped all over you know for coleman and yeah, i clearly i was yeah, yeah I, I was <laughs> extremely smitten by his writing mm-hmm. and he's one of the finest writers um out there um and so anyway so i, I moved to to uh, Northern California and through a series of very bizarre circumstances, I met the owner of 10 Speed Press mm-hmm. and was able to um, submit my book proposal to them and they took it right away. Wow, that's great. So it's perseverance and it's putting yourself out there, which I think a lot of people who are creative and sensitive and writerly have a real hard time doing is, is to do what you did, which is basically say, hey, look, look at me, you know, yeah, I, I think that's hard for people. So it's it's interesting that by put by writing those letters and making yourself known, it it paid off. That's really it cool. did, you know. And it's it can't be a lot of hand waving, right? I mean, that's, you can't you overdo know, it. Yeah, right. And you also, you know, I come from a very like I come from an academic background, mm-hmm. so um, it was always this thing of, of well, what do you have to contribute to the literature? <laughs> you know, what do you have right. new to say, mm-hmm. you know, and also um, I have a business background. It's like, what do you got to sell? Right. This is, so I've always taken a look at um, the writing and publishing at, from a financial perspective. Mm. No, nope, this is an investment they're making in you. It's and some people, one one agent said to me, well, this is like the loan you never have to repay. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but you know, I want to be earning royalties like in the long term too. So there's sure. all these different ways that you can, you know, structure a deal, a book deal. Um, you know, it's it's always like money now or money later. Do you want a ton of money up front, or mm-hmm. are you like betting that your book's going to sell through your advance and then you're going to earn royalties later on? Mm-hmm. And there are different ways to to structure that depending on what your financial goals are. So, you know, people who are thinking of writing professionally, um, you know, you can, there are many ways to do it. And then the other way is just to self-publish as well. Um, now, is that is, profitable? I mean, have you been able to make money doing that? Um, the self-publishing? Well, yeah. we uh, were able to raise um, around close, around $100,000. Was this for the Paula Wolford book? Correct. Okay. So that was, was yeah. that, was that money that was going to her? Or was that, was that? No, that, that was, that was total production money. Oh, for, for production. For printing. And, um, you know, we paid ourselves very modestly. 
Right. Um, but you've been self-publishing in the sense that you didn't try to bring this to a traditional publisher and you, you raised the money yourselves using the internet. Was that how you did it? Yes. The internet. <laughs> the internet. Well, I don't know. Was it like a go, go fund me or like a, uh, one of those things, you know, where yeah. it's like a, okay, got it. Yeah. I, I just wasn't familiar because I've seen that book in bookstores. So somehow it found its way out there. So that's really well, cool. Well, after it was um, released, we sold it. Oh, how does that yeah. work? Well, they purchased the rights. Grand Central mm. um, purchased the rights to the book, and um, we like it. You know, they they licensed it. We licensed it to them, so um, we then were able to make some money off of it. That was you know, a very highly unusual situation because yeah. our subject, Paula Wolfert, is a highly unusual woman, um, and so in that regard, you know our self-publishing experience was this kind of, I don't know, kind of fantasy dream-like situation. Mm -hmm. We had a photographer named Eric Wolfinger, um, who's based in San Francisco. And he's, he's just makes everyone glow with California mm -hmm. golden light. Uh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and, um, there's Paula and she, the book is called unforgettable because, um, she, has Alzheimer's. Right. That's what I was going to say, because for people who don't know, this was sort of a, a big story when that was announced that she had Alzheimer's because she wrote some, you know, really iconic cookbooks over her career. I have the cooking of Southwest France in my shelf, which I love. Um, so you, th this book that you were working on was sort of a tribute to her. Was that the idea? Yes. It was about her life, her mm -hmm. very unusual life that, that there were pieces of it here and there, but no one had really put the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. And so the book is about her life and um, through the lens of food. And mm -hmm. also um, we picked food that would fit into her Alzheimer's diet. Mm -hmm. So oh, that, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nutritional stuff. And, and that also illustrated her um, unusual intuitiveness with, with cooking and, and I mean, you know, Southwest France, man, that book is so yeah. incredibly awesome. I know. I'm too intimidated to actually cook from it, but I'm going to do it someday because it's so, but, some of those recipes are like wild. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but if you just read, you know, you're, yeah. you learn so much and, and Paula is gifted in that way. And, um, you know, if, if no one, if you're listening and you don't know who Paula Wolford is, yeah. just go to the library. What are the books besides that one that you would think are her most iconic? Um, well, the food of Morocco, foods of Morocco, Morocco. That's a beautiful Morocco. book. Yeah. 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 There's the big one that the thick one that was, um, full color. And uh -huh. then there's the original one. Um, the, the thick one is like a redo of, I mean, it's like, it's totally different Morocco book, but then the original one that, which was her first cookbook is pretty cool. And mm -hmm. then there's like this other quirky book called, um, Paula Wolfert's world of food. Okay. That um, she, I'm looking at it on my bookshelf to see where it is to make sure that I have the, um, the yes, Paula Wolfer's World of Food. And it's like all of her most, her, her coolest findings in food mm. and cooking throughout her career. It didn't sell well because she says it had her name on it. And she's mm. like, and she goes, if there's something on my name, well, it's just not going to sell well. 
has like this, this That's funny. <laughs> <voice>. <laughs> I'm going to buy it now. Cause I love that idea. Yeah, that you, great, yeah. And you like pick up all these ideas that she thought was like these really interesting little kernels of, 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 um, knowledge of cooking knowledge yeah. that she gleaned from, from home sh- cooks as well as chefs that she met. I'm going to maybe open a can of worms here and maybe this is going to take us way off track, but I was just reading a lot of articles about Diana Kennedy's legacy and this idea that, you know, a lot of people are arguing that while her life was out, out, these books that she made were really important, that there's the question of whether a white woman in Mexico should be writing these books about Mexican cuisine. And when you were talking about Paula Wolford in Morocco, I mean, it immediately made me think of that. And so is this something you talk about on your podcast at all? You know what? We haven't touched on it um, enough. I'm going to tell yeah. you that about this this um, idea of cultural appropriation. Right. And and when Paula and Diana came up, there were really few players out there. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, so it's you know you have to contextualize it. Yeah. Um, and then you also need to take a look at their work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how much credit they give to people. And I think that, that in both cases, they offered as much credit as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. And, and the third, the other thing I want to mention is that in cookbook publishing, it's not like writing on the internet where you have a ton of space, you know, like you can go on and on when right. you're writing something. Sure. I was a blogger. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. You're like, (laughs) hey, I got to, you know, my word count is unlimited. But when you're writing for uh, print, first of all, if you're just, if you're just writing and there's no photos, great. You know, if you're writing a novel, okay, you you don't have to think about layout that much. But when you're writing a cookbook, you are thinking about layout. Mm -hmm. You've got your introduction. That's a head note. Then you've got your ingredient list. How are you going to display that ingredient list so that it looks, it's it's legible, it's attractive, and um, it's got to flow a certain way. And then you've got your instructions. And then maybe you've got like notes, which Paula always had, um, like these little extra tidbits. So when you put all of those elements together, just for one recipe, there's only so much that you can put in there. Right. In terms of credit. And I think that, um, that, you know, folks did the best that they could. There are all kinds of, of discussions, you know, like um, in John Birdsall's book, Biography on Beard, he talks about how Beard like stole recipes mm-hmm. from people. And so that's like a different era. And I remember talking to Paula years ago and she said to me, if I had to be a food writer nowadays, I wouldn't be as successful as I was. Hmm. And why do you think she said that? I think that she recognized that there's just, there are a lot of different voices mm-hmm. now and that the, the situation is, is, um, is there, she, she said to me, for example, and I think this is in the book too. So you go around the country um, teaching cooking classes, she said. And like you toured the country cooking, you know, and doing these classes and everyone knew each other. You know, you would, in New York, you would of course end up interacting with, with Jim Beard, 
you mm-hmm. know, and, and then of course, Claiborne and, you know, Pepin and you just knew people because the number of people who were writing about food was relatively small. Right. And, and she said she would go and teach cooking classes all over the country and they were paid in cash. <laughs> and she said, so I would have like this money belt stuffed full of cash and we would just keep, keep like going around you know doing this and there'd be like and they knew everybody and she said there just weren't that many people writing about food mm-hmm. um but that said the stories that she embeds in her work and similarly the story that that diana kennedy puts in her work you know they are people who ad- were adventurers Right. That's what I was thinking too. It's like it's they about Im- discovery. Yeah. Yeah. They embedded themselves into these cultures. There's um, a point where, where we, we, we recount how Paula gets on this junket to go to, and Ruth Reichel was on the junket too, I believe, to go to the Soviet Union. And she overstays on purpose hmm. so that and the others go home and she overstays on purpose so that she can kind of travel to different parts of Eastern Europe and stuff. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so she took a lot of risks and I don't know if people, you know, it's like the kinds of risks that nowadays you just go, Oh my God, I can't believe you did that as a single woman. Yeah. I think Ruth Reichel did that when she went to China and one of her memoirs, she talks about like breaking away from the tour group to eat the food that she could find. Well, I'm curious though, because as we're talking about, you know, cultural appropriation and the idea of white people writing about other cultures, do you feel having sold your Vietnamese cookbook and over the years writing these other books that you get pigeonholed and are, you know, that it's harder for you to write books that are outside of your culture? Well, um, that's a great question because after Into the Vietnamese Kitchen came out, I thought, all right, that's it. I'm, right. you know, I'm not a type of person who's going to write the Vietnamese diet cookbook because mm-hmm. I'm chubby and I like to eat a lot. <laughs> yeah, and <me> too. <laughs> so I'm like, that's not yeah. me. And then like thick, quick and easy, down and dirty, that's also not me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I, I just really did not think that I had would have a career beyond the first book, beyond mm-hmm. Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. But then, um, Lorena Jones, who was overseeing 10 Speed Press back then came to me and she said, we think you can write a book about dumplings, mm-hmm. about Asian dumplings. And I said, really? She said, yeah, you're, you do these really great instructions. And we want a book on dumplings where pe- people are making doughs from scratch. And I said, really? and I thought well this could be really challenging so so and fun so then I went from writing um you know just Vietnamese stuff to writing pan-Asian cookbooks like single subjects so um in that regard I got to get away from Vietnamese only but I do have to tell you that despite the fact that I wrote um Asian dumplings and then the third book was Asian tofu Mm -hmm. the books that came after tofu were Vietnamese cookbooks. So Mm -hmm. people who come now who learn about me, they just think I'm like, oh, you just like focus on on Vietnamese food. Mm -hmm. But I have a very um, pan-Asian perspective because one of the problems with Asian food in America is that they, people think that we are monolithic, Mm -hmm. that um, Asian food is Chinese food, that Southeast Asian food is Thai food, 
And then there is also this glorification of Japanese food. You know, it's like Japanese food is the French food of Asia. Mm-hmm. And anything in Japanese will always sound better than it is in any other yeah. language, like that's French, funny. you know? Yeah, that's yeah, funny right? to think about those prejudices about different Asian cuisines. I, I never really thought about it that way, but there's some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then even ourselves, as Vietnamese people, there's this thing of like, oh, white people or Westerners or outsiders, you know, depending on what term you use, will never quite understand our food because nook mam fish sauce is stinky. And I'm just like, if you are not proud of your own ingredients, then who, how can you represent it? You know, and I felt like I didn't want, I didn't want a white person presenting Vietnamese food. Right. So you had a real, you didn't feel pigeonholed necessarily as much as you really genuinely wanted to celebrate and and hold up Vietnamese food. Yes, exactly. And and the other thing about Vietnamese food is that it is so connected with the rest of Asia because Mm -hmm. there are elements, Vietnam is technically an East Asian country. If you like talk about things anthropologically, it's like one of the four countries in Asia um, that, that, regularly uses chopsticks as the main eating utensil okay so that's what like when i say to people east asia includes china japan korea and vietnam because they are um more or less you know unified by chopsticks and also this idea that a lot of their culture um is connected to china Mm -hmm. and then southeast asia is right next door you know vietnam's part of southeast asia too um geographically but South Asia is connected to Vietnam because like there was so much trade between South Asia and Southern Vietnam. There's an Indian community in Saigon. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, our curries are not like Thai curries. They're based upon spice blends that are like Madras style (laughs) curry blends. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like this really, and then the French were there and the Portuguese were there and the Americans were there. So I felt like, okay, Vietnam is a great way for me to discuss Asia and what it is. I was trying to tackle that with tofu and with dumplings because I was like, okay, if I can like use dumplings and hook people in and then show them, look at dumplings and then you can see that it's more than just dim sum Mm -hmm. and that every Asian country has a dumpling, just like every cuisine on the planet has a dumpling. And that it's like, we can (laughs) be connected through this one kind of food. Right. And, and so, and tofu too, there were like so many tofu haters. And I was like, I can battle this because no one's talked about tofu from an Asian perspective. Right. I guess I'm asking though, like if you wanted to pitch like, like a Molly Stevens book, like all about roasting or something where it's like a better, like a technique that has nothing to do with Vietnamese food or Asian food. Do you think it would be harder for you to sell that book because you get pigeonholed as a Vietnamese cook, cookbook author? Or do you feel like well, that doesn't I, affect you as much? Well, I'm going to tell you this. I am not going to be, even though I make, you know, a good red sauce and meatballs, <laughs> I am not the person to write that book. Right. I mean, so you're 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 where you want to be. It's not like you're being forced to be somewhere where you no. don't want to be. You're doing what you want to do, which actually exactly. t- ties back into something I heard on your podcast, which is like, 
you have to write your cookbook, not because you think you're going to get rich, but because you have something to say and something you really want to get out there, which sounds like with every book you've been talking about that you've written, you had a real motivation to write it, which is key. Yeah, because, you know, um, you're, a cookbook comes into someone's home. And for me, a cookbook should be able to tell some kind of arc of a story, mm-hmm. some kind of idea that because otherwise I need motivation. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so much to writing a book. I think people don't realize the cookbook, especially like the testing, the, you know, the layout, the photography, the, the edits, the copy edits, the, you know, promotion. It's just so much work. So yes, it is. Sure. So you need yeah. like, you need mojo. Yes, for sure. And for yourself and for your reader so that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, so, and you, you don't get rich doing it. So you, you got to just do it for some other reason. Yeah, exactly. My husband's like, honey, you didn't do this to get rich. All right. But you have oh, a yeah. good time. And so you're very lucky to do work that you love. My husband is literally saying that to me right now. Because, you know, I mean, this one I just wrote, it's like, I don't even want to say, but, and I probably shouldn't say, but in terms of how much money I got paid previously to write a cookbook and then how I'm getting paid now it's much less now and I don't know if that's because the culture has shifted or because I was co-writing it with other people but you know it's just like it's almost unlivable like if I didn't have a a partner who also made money I was I I couldn't live off this I couldn't just be a food writer so no no you need someone with benefits and and with with a retirement plan yeah and also because they get you know they get free food all the time so you are like you know live in chef so that's good yeah no but i i do have to going back to your your question of getting pigeonholed there was a, oh, yeah. a friend Sorry. who um who a long time said you should just like stay he basically said stay in your lane you know it, it's sometimes yeah. nice to focus on something and be the expert mm-hmm. um but nowadays uh when let's say i am asked to write for food and wine magazine they're not asking me to write strictly about vietnamese food mm-hmm. And they're asking me to write on subjects that allow me to express my interests in culture mm-hmm. and connections and humanity. That. And that is a very, that's where I want to be in terms of a writer and what I want to be known for. Mm-hmm. It's just Vietnamese food is an avenue to get there. And I think that that, that for me makes for a, a meaningful career. Otherwise, if it's just money, I would have stuck to being a banker, which is what I studied. <laughs> oh yeah, college. I went to law school, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But you know, it's funny we haven't even really gotten into Vietnamese food, which I know because we were talking about cookbooks. But um, just for while while I have you, I, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you just to talk a little bit about, you know, what are the misconceptions people have about Vietnamese food versus what you love about it and how people think about it. Um, people have often come to me and said. I love Vietnamese food. I was like, great. Tell me what you love about it. And they go, it's not Thai food. And I said, great. It's not Thai food. (laughs) And then they go, it's so fresh. Mm. And I go, that's great. And, and, but, and I'm like, you know, fresh, you know, and it's not Thai food. But I think that what people really love about Vietnamese food is the fact that it's not honestly scary Mm -hmm. you know you and it's you can have it your way Mm -hmm. um and it's it's is varied and combined in the sense that it combines eastern with western ideas Mm -hmm. and so even though it is um 
people think that they understand it. For example, they go, oh, sriracha, that's like always part of Vietnamese food. It took me years to dispel that. I'm like, no, sriracha is not Vietnamese. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, what? And I go, but then I have to explain, you know, the whole history of the rooster brand of sriracha being like developed and sold by a Chinese Vietnamese man who was in Chinatown in Los Angeles. And he actually made chili sauces in Vietnam, but here he is, you know, he made like these three kinds of chili sauces for Southeast Asia and happens to just really land on a good one that he like smartly places at all the Vietnamese restaurants that he knows. So I didn't know any of that. That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. And so like when you go to a Vietnamese restaurant, you'll see the sriracha bottle, but then you'll also see this chili garlic sauce, mm-hmm. the chili garlic sauce. Um, and, and then there's a sambal olek. So if you go to the supermarket, the sriracha is, you know, a Thai, it has Thai origins. And then he's got the chili garlic sauce in Vietnamese. And because the labeling is so darn confusing because there are, is Chinese, English, Vietnamese on there. In Vietnamese, it says tương ức tỏi Việt Nam. Tương ức tỏi means fermented um, chili garlic sauce. Vietnam is, so it says Vietnamese chili garlic sauce on the plastic jar of chili garlic sauce. So that is meant for Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. But the sriracha took off because you can just squirt it like ketchup. <laughs> right, sure. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's... everybody has it now in their refrigerator. So. Exactly. And then the sambal olek is really like a Malay, an Indonesian, Malaysian kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that has a different flavor. So he smartly had cornered the Southeast Asian market for chili sauces. But what most Vietnamese people use um, is the chili garlic sauce. Now, nowadays, like there is like more chili sauces that look like um, sriracha. But even when you go to Vietnam, it tastes different. And the brands mm. that are coming out of Vietnam have a much like sweeter, um, less fury quality than the sriracha chili sauce. So, you know, for years I was like, it's sriracha is not Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that um, I battle is like when you eat pho, you know, don't squirt the chili sauce or the hoisin sauce directly into the bowl because you're just going to like, ruin the broth okay and and the other thing (laughs) adam you shouldn't ask me these questions i love it no no this is great this is good to know then i cannot stand the photos of pho where there is a spent wedge of lime in the bowl i don't understand that (laughs) it's a bowl of soup it is not a cocktail (laughs) So what do you, do you, do you just drink it? So do you, do you add the condiments to it or like those? Well, so, so fall, you like, you typically, like you would put the, I make a little yin yang <laughs> pattern in a small uh, dipping sauce. So you sit down at a faux restaurant and you see those little small um, dipping sauce, those plastic things on that sleeve, take one of those out, make a little yin yang pattern of poison sauce and sriracha. And then you you dip your toppings in there and then you put it in your mouth and then you eat as you eat, because that way it's not going to like totally take over your, your faux broth, which, which when it's good, it's like very nuanced and balanced. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, I remember like going to eat pho with a very good friend of mine, 
like she's like this brilliant scientist and she just picked up the sriracha you know oh, before no. <laughs> ever tasting the pho but the thing was with with the the lime you know if the pho broth is too um sweet or it just needs to brighten just a little squeeze of lime juice is great mm. but then like vietnamese people we don't like leave the lime in the bowl because <laughs> it's good to know i wouldn't i, I mean I haven't had fun in a while, but now I'll be very self-conscious when I do. Well, careful. think about <laughs> it, Adam. I mean, there's all of the bitterness in the oils on the skin. Right. Yeah. I think I like, and 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 then like, are you gonna chew on that as you're like <laughs> shoveling your way through the to the bottom of the bowl, you know? And so when I see these photos and that darn wedge is in there, I'm like, take it out. <laughs> well, I think people who are listening are are gonna are gonna learn from this. So well, you know, look. <laughs> Started out saying in the beginning, you can have it your way. That's just my way. Right. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, I forgot to ask about, because you talked about coming to America as a refugee in, in this, was this in the seventies that you came? Yes. yes. And so, and you came with your parents um, and did you, because I was just thinking about eating Vietnamese food growing up, but were you also eating American food when you got here? And what did you think of it? And as you grew up, like, were you fond of American food too? And how did that play into the cookbook author that you became? Um, I loved, we, we loved discovering different flavors and different cuisines. My parents um, were very curious about culture. So when we came here, we looked around and was like, oh my God, look at all this affordable butter and sugar mm -hmm. and white flour. I mean, you know, now, like when I'm talking, I'm like, oh my God, that's causing, you know, obesity and diabetes. <laughs> in this right. But back then in 1975, what did we know? And mm -hmm, we were sure. like, America, we love you. And, <laughs> and um, there were these very nice women in um, our, our Southern California town called St. Clemente. Um, which is on the coast and and the, the people knew that Vietnamese refugees were settling in town because Camp Pendleton, um, one of the first refugee resettlement um, places in America was like just right south of San Clemente. So mm -hmm. there are some Vietnamese families being sponsored um, into the San Clemente uh, community. And so, and we look, obviously look different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is 1975. And my mom started a, um, a tailoring business out of the okay. apartment that we rented. And so people would bring us things to like, show us this is what America is. Mm. So they would bring us um, like their, like, you know, copies of Women's Day, Better <laughs> Homes and Gardens, all these like women's magazines so that we could like see what America was all about. So we, we learned about brownies and spaghetti right and um, seven layer bars. And my mom brought this little orange notebook from Vietnam with her um, and it contained um, her recipes mm -hmm. that she um, found to be that things that she needed to have written down and it was half full. So as I page through it now, it's like, you know, we have like Vietnamese dishes in half of the book and it's written in beautiful penmanship, you know, in Vietnam. And then we have like, you know, pineapple jello salad and brownies <laughs> and shortbread and seven layer bars, you know, um, in the other half of, of the book and other American things. So even if like we made spaghetti, my mother would always say, I need my rice. Mm. Oh yeah. I think I saw that in your book. There's a side of rice with spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's really... like, I, I need to have my Vietnamese-ness. Mm. 
And in terms of your own relationship to the Vietnamese culture that you came from as you were growing up in America, um, were you ashamed of it at all ever? Like in terms of like, you know, bringing food to school? I mean, I've heard this before from people from other cultures that they'd be embarrassed if they, you know, brought their food to school and somebody said it was smelly or something or, but were you, was it something that you ever had to grapple with or was it pretty much not a big well, deal? It was strange to the extent of um my so so there are certain things that are made in the Vietnamese repertoire that demands fresh banana leaf okay and and my parents bought this their first home um because partly because there was this banana tree okay that's a good reason <laughs> and it was like this mature banana tree and um, my parents were like oh we feel right at home because my mom a few years ago she said to me in vietnam everybody has to like have like a banana tree nearby because you use the leaves all the time right. for wrapping foods you know for for lining steamer trays and stuff and um so <laughs> she would send my brother out with a machete to like <laughs> hack down oh like a God. leaf or two whenever he, she needed it and you know it was like things like that that made me feel like oh my god you know <laughs> the neighbors she, were like there's a kid with the machete, machete right down a tree. yeah like, that's funny again you know <laughs> what's with those winds um or she did strange things like um she um there is this method for faking um this kind of like smoky flavor on a piece of pork and it's supposed to be like a mock dog stew oh. and so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to like put the chunk of pork in um like rice straw and then you light the rice straw on fire and then it like you know once it turns to ashes it like gives like this kind of flavor to the exterior of the meat mm -hmm. well my mom didn't have the rice straw so um she would put her large chunk of pork in the newspaper she subscribed <laughs> to the newspaper back then and she would put it in the fireplace and she would light it on fire and, wow and there were like things like that that happened in our family because we were like eating like very traditional vietnamese food and i don't recall like i made my own lunch mm -hmm. And I would make sandwiches and stuff because I was like kind of obsessed with sandwiches when I was growing up. So I made sandwiches. I brought them to, to school. It, it was nothing like stinky, you know, mm -hmm. maybe I had like liverwurst in there every once in a while or homemade pate, but it was nothing like I never felt really ashamed on the level that some people did mm -hmm. because I just was like eating sandwiches. Right. Um, but there was like this thing of like thinking, oh my God, what are people going to think if if you know they know that we hack up leaves from the yard all the time <laughs> and my mom's like with like burning chunks of pork up you know and um but we never had that level of of embarrassment because one of the things that my mother um really resented is the fact that when the french came to vietnam and my mom was born in the mid-30s she said the french hated our fish sauce mm. And she said that with this thing of like, you know, screw them. And so that notion, so for her, her food is part of her 
the pride that she carries. Right. There is pride as the opposite of shame. It's like, you're, yeah, you're proud of the food that you come from. I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking about like fish sauce, um, you know, red boat specifically. I mean, I feel like there's been like a, a wave of interest in Vietnamese food over the past, I want to say two decades or decade. It's like I, these things. I, you know, what do you think? Yeah. The last 10 years, I think, years. I think that yeah. this, um, that, um, travel to Vietnam. I think that uh, someone like Anthony Bourdain made a huge mm -hmm. difference. Um, I look at his work and what the messages that he was trying to communicate. And his message for Vietnam was really one of trying to heal from the Vietnam War. Right. And so um, you know, the, he comes, he was born into the genera a generation of people who had a lot of bad experiences with, with America's involvement in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And so his support of travel to Vietnam and Vietnamese food, I think was really important to give credibility to the cuisine and its flavors. And mm -hmm to allow, you know, people to have this sense of like pride. Um, and also, you know, there's been a huge sea change. When you take a look at like generationally, people come to, to America, first generations, and they have to take up certain professions because they just have to make a living. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people open restaurants or grocery stores and stuff. And so now we've got like, uh, not my generation necessarily, because I was born in Vietnam, but the generation of Vietnamese, American-born Vietnamese people, they are chefs and restaurateurs by choice. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very different than when I was growing up. Because when I decided to um, pursue professional cooking in the early 90s um, at a Los Angeles restaurant named City, I, had, I was like earning, I think it's like $5 an hour. Was as that I, um, Mary Sue Milliken's restaurant? And Susan Fenegar's. Susan Fenegar. yeah. Wow, I didn't know you worked there. I've had Susan on this podcast before. Oh, so. my God. Yeah, they, she's great. They, they gave opportunities to women who, mm. like me, who had absolutely no experience in a professional kitchen. That's so cool. I love them. I think they're two of the like, least, like, I think they, they, they're under-acknowledged. Like, they should be up there with, like, you know, Thomas Keller and, like, chefs that are just always listed as like the best chefs in the country. I think they are, they deserve the same status for what they've done, I think. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, back then my parents were so ashamed when I said, I'm going to go work in a restaurant. Mm. And they were like, ah! yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. and my mom, my, they were like, we sent you to call, you know, you went to college for this, you know? Right. And, and I was like, I really, you know, this is like my passion, but because I was the youngest child, they gave up on me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of disciplining me um but at the end of my time at city and it was and I wasn't there for very long my dad actually said to me if you want to go to culinary school I will pay oh. and he didn't he was a man of very modest means mm -hmm. so you know and that was in the 90s um and I and my parents are very progressive in certain ways, very conservative tradition in other ways, but mm -hmm. they saw that as like, you know, identifying in me this interest that they wanted to support 
um, even though for many years I didn't know how I was going to make a living from writing cookbooks. So did you go to culinary school? No. Oh, okay. He, but he offered to. He offered. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I don't need to go to culinary school. Um, be, and I, I, I was honestly like so kind of put off by restaurants. Even I remember one day standing next to Susan. Um, I was, I was um, a pantry cook and we, you know, I'd have to set up the plate for the hamburgers um, and, and salads and stuff. So sandwiches and salads and apps were my thing. Mm -hmm. And one day a ticket came in, it was like VIP Caesar salad, hold the dressing <laughs> and the croutons. <laughs> okay. And I looked at her and she said, we have to give the customers what they want. And I was like, got it. So just like romaine lettuce on a plate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, and I had to like make it look good. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't deal with customers. That's the thing. It's like I could fantasize about opening a cute little like cafe, but then it's like, oh, wait, I have to deal with actual people. And that's uh, fun. Well, we're, that's, we're flying through this conversation. I wanted to ask you, though, before we end, um, what did your family ever go back to Vietnam to visit? you know, once they came to America, like, and ha have you traveled there um, many times since? I have um, gone to Vietnam um, a number of times, starting in 2002. Okay. And um, the first time I went, my, my parents said, don't go, you have friends in Europe, you go to mm -hmm. Italy, go to Northern Italy, your friends live there, they're really friendly. You told me, don't go to Vietnam, because my, my dad really feared that, um, that I would be in danger because um, mm. he had a military position back in um, the 50s and 60s. Okay. And um, he retired in 63, but he says, you know, you never know they're always watching you, the communists. Mm. And I was like, no, I'm going. And one of my sisters had gone on business many years before. Um, and so, you know, I started going and I've gone several times primarily to research for my work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether I'm reporting a story about red boat fish sauce or sometimes I've been on press trips or researching pho or whatever, dumplings. I've gone, but my parents never went. Okay, so they, they haven't gone back. No, my, my dad passed away um, recently and he never sorry. went. I don't know. That's all right. You know, he lived, he had a long 90 year run on this planet. All right. Yeah. And he saw everything, you know, from like no electricity to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a big uh, change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so my mom said, we, we don't want to go because this is, that is no longer our country. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of her fears having her heart broken. Yeah. Every time um, I go, for example, I, um, when we, when I'm in Saigon, the road to and from the airport in Saigon goes past my family's old home. Mm -hmm. And there's like this major thoroughfare and I'll like, you know, I leave the airport when I get there and I'm driving into town and I see the house and I go, oh my God, there's the house. And I, what does it look like? Mm -hmm. You know, when I return to the airport to depart, I look at the house 
And one time my sisters and I, um, I wrote a story for Sever magazine about returning to Vietnam with my sisters. And we went and we looked at the home and um, it was turned into like this Montessori or kindergarten. And we said, oh, well, we used to live here. Can we just take a look? And they said, no, because they feared that if we were like the former occupants that we would like want to lay claim to the home. And we're like, no, we just want to like see. Huh. And they're like, no, and they wouldn't let us in. And and so, you know, just stuff like that, you just go, well, this is not, this is not our place. Yeah. So for me, you know, I, I'm a person who has, who has very strange roots. Mm-hmm. I, um, I hold on to my Vietnamese-ness through food. Yeah, I was just about to say, it's like the way of staying in touch with that past that your mom doesn't want to have spoiled or just that, that, that romantic idea of the past that, you know, it keeps you tethered to it as opposed to, you know, trying to recreate it by going back. It's like, you get to do it through the food. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And when I go back, I, I learn so much and because I'm connecting with people there and ingredients and I'm discovering things. Mm -hmm. And because I, I come practically like, um, Tabla rasa, I'm always asking questions. I speak very basic Vietnamese, except for when it gets to food. <laughs> I know ingredients and techniques and stuff, and people are very surprised. Um, but that's that's my entree. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that whatever heritage you are, whether you're still living in the con- your native country or not, food is just a great way to connect very deeply. Mm-hmm. um with your identity is there a specific dish that is the one for you that is the most nostalgic or the one that brings you the most back to your childhood or your family oh adam that's such a hard <laughs> yes no, there is there is so so um in vietnamese food any day there is this which i, um, which I have right here yes yeah book. oh awesome thank you <laughs> thank you and so that book was written because um it, it circles back to my family's initial experiences shopping for ingredients at American supermarkets. And we were like, you know, there's, there are things here that we can use. There are ingredients here on the shelves in the aisles that we can use to make Vietnamese food. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be okay in this new country. We can be Vietnamese in America, mm-hmm. you know, and then that now has evolved to being a Vietnamese Americans and, and, having that balanced perspective, our supermarkets are so well stocked nowadays to make foods from all over the world. So much better than, you know, 1975, obviously. Um, But there is this dish that is, there are these little pork crumbles that are caramelized and and they, um, there's no photo of, of the recipe, but it's like you get fatty pork and you cook it up with, you essentially fry it with like this bittersweet caramel sauce and fish sauce. Mm. And um, it just gets really rich and fatty and salty sweet. And then you eat it on rice. And I always have a little bit of the daikon carrot pickle. And I just absolutely, that to me is the food of my childhood. That is the road food that we would take because my dad, my parents would pack little like rice balls and, and that rice and that pork and we'd eat it on the road or take it on a picnic. Um, and when I make it, it just, it always takes me right back there. And what's it called? Uh, it's called, um, let me check what page that's on. <laughs> okay. 
it's uh, it's the recipe is called crispy caramelized pork crumbles, mm-hmm. and it's on page one thirty two in the book, and it's to the point where it's so good that even my nephew, who's now um, in his medical residency and he didn't doesn't cook very much, he asked his mom for the recipe because he just missed it so much when my sister was making it for him. And so my sister sent him my recipe from Vietnamese food any day and uh-huh. said, here's <laughs> Andrea's recipe, go make it. And now he makes it for himself. That's so so cool. it's just, yeah. And it's called thịt heo bam, and it's just, which literally translates into like minced pork. But when you say that to someone who's Vietnamese, they're like, Oh yeah. I know what that means. Well, that's a great um, note to end on because this is what I'm going to make first from this book. This is, um, it's making me oh. hungry just thinking about it. So, uh, well, Andrea, thank you so much for taking an hour to talk to me. This is great. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, thank you for, for having me on the show and um, talking about a wide range of things, Adam. Yeah, we covered a lot of stuff, but for people who want to listen to your podcast, it's called um, Everything Cookbooks, right? Correct. Everything cookbooks and you can find us wherever that you get your podcast fix. And not to get everyone too excited, but I think I'm going to be a guest soon coming up. I have it on my calendar. So, uh, well, I'll put that in my newsletter when that happens. So yeah, we're going to put you in the hot seat, Adam. Yeah, I know. We'll turn the (laughs) tables. Well, Andrew, thanks so much again and have a great rest of your summer. Okay. You too. Thank you. Thank you.